cookies. Um, so this morning, we are going to be looking into Mark chapter 9. And, and as we dig in uh, to this section of Scripture, it is an awesome section of Scripture. So I want you to think, what is one event in the life of Jesus? What is one event, one miracle that just really stands out to you? Give it to me. What would it be? Walking on water? Somebody says something over here. Water to wine? Saving Lazarus. Yeah. There's all, yeah. Absolutely. The multiplying of the fish. So we have all of these amazing miracles. And, and when we look at just uh, the last section of Scripture um, for the disciples, um, they had the, the, the raising of, 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 of Jairus' daughter. Um, we have the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. We have Jesus walking on the water, him declaring that he is the Messiah uh, to those closest to him. I mean, there are some really amazing miracles. But when we look at all of the miracles that have taken place, one of them specifically stands out to the Apostle Peter. It stood out so much to the Apostle Peter that he's actually going to write about it some 30 years later. In, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, uh, a, gl a glimpse of God's glory had so gripped him that he just couldn't stop talking about it. This is what Peter says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming <clears throat> of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with, him, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So this eyewitness account of Peter in the transformation of Jesus. He couldn't stop talking about it. It was such amazing power to see the glory on display. Peter just played it over and over and over and over again in his mind. Majesty, power, honor, glory, all of that of Jesus being shown forth. And notice that this wasn't just Peter's perspective. Peter doesn't just mention it by himself. He uses the term we a couple of times. And this is reference that Peter, James, and John were all there with Jesus on this mountain. And I love how Mark lays out the flow of these events in the gospel. The big idea two weeks ago was salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 34... Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, we're called to line up our desires, to deny ourselves, to die to sin, to devote ourselves to following him. And we learned that we must be close with Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to continue to see here today. And this is certainly one of the most challenging statements that Jesus ever made. When he says to give up everything, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow him. I mean, that is, that is monumental for Jesus to be able to say. And for Jesus to be able to say that, it would be great if they could just catch a glimpse of his true glory. Well, here's the thing. They're about to. 
especially Peter, James, and John. And so here's the big idea today. A glimpse of glory will keep us going. All we need is just a glimpse of glory, and that, that will keep us going for all the time that we have. As, as I prayed over this message over the last couple of weeks, I'm praying that we'll catch a glimpse of God's glory, that we will remember what the vision of the church is, and that through that vision, we will continue to reach the lost for Jesus Christ. So if you don't know what our vision is, um, I've got it for you. It is just, this, this is our logo, um, and, and it has these arrows. You see the arrows kind of all around the church. They're up here. They're out there. They're all over our website. Well, what do those arrows mean? Well, our vision is to constantly have that forward momentum. That's what we're looking at through, the whole, through this whole year. The gospel of Mark is forward momentum, moving forward with Christ. Well, that's our vision for our lives as well, that we need to consistently be moving forward in our lives, that we will seek the lost, that we will seek Jesus, that we will come together in worship, that we will lead those, that, that we will find a way to be involved in small groups of some kind, whether it's being a part of Bible study here at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings right through these doors, whether it's a part of women's Bible studies, whether it's a part of, of men's Bible studies that we're going to be meeting once a month through the summer, and then we're going to look to be doing even more coming th this, this fall, whether it be a part of discipleship groups that we're going to be starting very soon for men and women, whether it be a, a life group. Here's the thing. We need life group leaders. We need hosts for our life groups. So if that's something that you're interested in, if you want to open your home and say, hey, come in and we would love to host a life group in our home, we need those. If you say, hey, we've been called to lead a life group, you need to contact me. We, we need more people to sign up to be a part of what we're trying to do. And then that we're going to deploy the disciples, that we're going to take that last arrow and then we're going to go out. And we're going to share the gospel message. And I just met with Adam this morning, and we talked about um, some of the events that we're looking forward to uh, this fall. One of them being that we're going to do Rise Against Hunger again. And, and so um, they, they just had a meeting. He's got to get back in contact with them. But we're looking to pack meals again this coming November. We're going to get all of that information out to you. We're excited about what's going to happen. And so I'm encouraged, and I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be excited about what Jesus is doing right here at Stafford County Christian Church and what he's going to use us to do all around the world as well. So please always remember that. I, I, I like this quote from A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The cause of many of our modern spiritual woes is the loss in today's church of a lofty concept of God. He, he goes on to argue persuasively that the cure lies in our rediscovery of God's majesty. And that's something that we truly need to do. We need to see God as not just my homeboy not just my buddy, not just my friend, not some guy that I hang out with, but we see the true majesty of who God is in our lives, the greatness, the goodness, the majesty, the bigness of who God is. A generation ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. How many of us truly see God for who he is? You know, J.R. talked about last week, he talked about Gideon and the 300. 
you sure, God, 300 against an entire army? And, and, and he had a huge army, and he took it down, and then he took it down again, and, and 300 is who he took into battle. Well, we see it with Elijah, and, you know, Elijah's just kind of kicked back. He's relaxing, and one of his guys comes up to him and says, do you see the armies that are in front of us? And Elijah's like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> are you sure? Why? Because he couldn't see, the servant couldn't see the angel army that was there for him on their side. And as soon as his eyes were open, he went, oh, okay, I got this. We forget how big our God is. We forget the true majesty and the power and the greatness of who our God is. And we need to bring that back into our lives. And we need to truly see that with Jesus. And that's the thing. When we look at who Jesus is, and that's what carried Peter. I mean, Peter went through some pretty crazy stuff. All of the disciples suffered horrible deaths except for one. And that was John. He died of old age and he died on, exiled on the island of Patmos. But run through with a spear, crucified, crucified upside down, thrown off the top of the temple, boiled. But it was a glimpse of God's glory that continued to keep them steady the whole way, beheaded. I mean, crazy things that happened to these disciples, but they never gave up. They never gave in. Why? Because they knew who Jesus was. And they knew what this world couldn't offer, heaven had something to offer to them. And so that's why they stayed the course. So we're going to get into to Mark chapter 9 here this morning. And we're going to begin by noting the setting. Then we're going to see the splendor of Jesus, which is followed by a, a strange solution by Peter. And then we'll consider the supremacy of Jesus. So let's start with the setting. Where, where did all of this take place? So, so the disciples and Jesus had been hanging out in this area called Caesarea Philippi. And, and so three weeks ago, um, Jared brought us the message and, and he, he really broke it down. And uh, hey, who do you say that I am? And, and they gave all kinds of different opinions. And, and Mark doesn't record this, but, but in the other gospels, it's actually recorded that this takes place right outside of Caesarea Philippi, and there's still a place, the entrance to hell. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades was right there, and, and people, pagan worship was all around that area. And so when Jesus said that <clears throat> the message was solid and the gates of hell would not overcome it, he actually said it right in front of what many people believe was the gates of hell. So, so just keep that in mind that Jesus doesn't just pull things out of the air and go, hey, this sounds really good, let's put it here. No, he spoke to a specific audience at a specific place. So cool for us to be able to understand. But he is in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Now, it was not uncommon for Jesus to take away just the 12. So there was huge crowds that always followed Jesus, but then there was times that he would get away with just the 12. <clears throat> but then there were other times where Jesus pulled Peter, James, and John away. He had this small discipleship group that were really devoted to him, and he just poured into them even more. And that's very, very important for us. See, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John when Jairus' daughter is going to be raised from the dead. 
they were part of the inner circle when, when Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. It was Peter, James, and John that were with him as well. So this encounter was for their benefit. In, in verse 2, we see the phrase, before them, and in verse 4, appeared to them. In verse 7, God the Father tells them to listen to him, that this would strengthen their commitment to follow Jesus, preparing for suffering that they were going to have to go through as well. And perhaps he also took them as eyewitnesses because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So for this to have taken place, there needed to be more than just Jesus going up on the mountainside. So we have all of these things taking place here in this moment. Another possible <clears throat> excuse me, reason that Jesus took these guys with him, going up on top of a mountain took time. Maybe Jesus just wanted their companionship. He wanted friendship. We, needed, we need to have friendship. So Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, we're not told what mountain this was. Um, tradition says that it was Mount Tabor, but just outside of Caesarea Philippi is another mountain. It's the highest mountain in all of Israel. It's Mount Hermon. Her <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. It's about 9,000 feet above sea level. And so Jesus is going to take them up on top of the mountain. Whatever mountain it is, <clears throat> excuse me, he takes them up there. In, in a parallel account in, Mark, or in Luke chapter 9, we read in verse 28 that Jesus took the three on the mountain to pray. And in verse 32, we see that they do what many people do in prayer and sometimes in my preaching. What happens? Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Now that's interesting. Here's these three guys that are closest with Jesus, right? He's pulling them aside to pour into them, and what happens? They fall asleep. It's the same exact thing that happens when he takes them to the Mount of Olives. These guys that were supposed to be the closest with Jesus are sleeping. So here's the thing that I want you to understand. Oh, I'm not that close with Jesus. Oh, oh, I'm not as good as Peter, James, and John. It's okay. He still loves you. And he wants you to, because here's the thing. Those that were closest to Jesus, they're knocked out sleeping. So don't ever go, oh, I'm not good enough. Here's the thing. None of us are good enough. We all need the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen. Don't ever forget that. Don't put someone else up on a pedestal. Okay, don't put your pastor, don't put your elders, don't put your, your Sunday school teacher, don't, don't put someone else that you have grown up with in the faiths up on some pedestal as the shining beacon of the only example because they will fail you every single time. Please never forget that. But one will never fail you. One will never leave you. One will never forsake you. And that is Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross for you. Please never forget that. So the disciples are about to have this momentous mountaintop experience. And as soon as they wake up, they're going to catch a glimpse of the glory. Thank you so much. <clears throat> All the pollen and the temperature drop. And just wait five minutes, it'll change again. We're in Virginia. 
So now we have the setting, Caesarea Philippi. We're going to now move on to the splendor of Jesus. Look at the last phrase in verse 2. It says, and he was transfigured before them. Now this word transfigured, it means to have a metamorphosis. It it means um, it has the same idea of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Okay, very, very important for us to see. It literally is a change on the outside, but it had already been on the inside the whole time. We could say that Jesus changed forms. The glory of Jesus that had been concealed in the manger is now revealed on the mountain. So this metamorphosis takes place in Jesus' life. His glory that was on the inside, the true power, majesty, and splendor of Jesus has now come bursting forth and is showing through to those disciples. One commentator puts it like this, For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and Jesus' body shined with brilliance. Here we see Jesus reassuming his own true form. So the transfiguration of Jesus is seen in three ways. The first one is through his countenance. In Luke chapter 9, verse 29, it says, The appearance of his face was altered. Matthew 17, verse 2 adds, His face shone like the sun. When Moses was with God um, up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 34, verse 30, it says that his face shone. So Jesus' face does the same exact thing when he was in the presence of God that Jesus' face is going to do now. Could you imagine what that would have been like on a, on a dark night? That all of a sudden, you see this brilliance, this light that just comes shining through of who Jesus truly is. But then there was a second change that took place, and that was of his clothing. The splendor of Jesus also affects his clothing. Look at verse 3, it says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now the word radiant means to glitter, to shine like lightning. The same word is used to describe Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The true beauty, power, and majesty of, of Christ comes shining so, so much It shows through so much that his face is shining, his clothes become bright, white. It's amazing to see this. Intensely is the word that is used here, very much exceedingly. White garments were worn by priests, kings, and they represented purity. The the normal average person didn't wear white. Okay, why? Because it would be stained. I'm one of those ordinary people that doesn't wear white. Because the moment that I wear white, do you know what happens? Stain. It doesn't matter. I mean, the moment that I put, I, I, could, I could have not spilled anything on me, never happens, but I could, spill, I could not have spilled anything on me for a month, and I put a white shirt on, pff, there it is. I, I see people that wear it, you know, they wear white when they're golfing. There's no way. Maybe it's because I'm in the rough so much that there's constantly mud and dirt all over my ball and sticks, and immediately this is what I do. I mean, when I get something on my hands immediately, that's why I always wear dark pants, because immediately I'm wiping my hands on my pants. And it never fails. Normal people just don't wear white, but priests do. Kings 
do. Why? Because it shows purity. Radiant, intense. White light, white light was used to describe God himself. In, in Psalm chapter 104, verse 1, it says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. In one of his benedictions, the Apostle Paul said this about Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, who dwells in unapproachable light. The Apostle John described Jesus in this way, Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. So his countenance, his clothing, and number three, through his companions. As Peter, James, and John are trying to process this change that is taking place with Jesus, we read this in, in verse 4. Two companions are going to show up. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Moses is going to represent the law. Elijah is represented and, and it, uh, of the people and the prophets. And that's fitting because Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And now the law and the prophets show up before Jesus. And they're sharing and they're talking with him. Again, never forget this. The Old Testament and the New Testament are combined with Jesus. Never, ever forget that. So when we see this, that is what is playing through at this moment. We know from Luke chapter 9, verse 31, that Elijah and Moses were talking with Jesus about his departure. The word is actually Exodus. Jesus is going to be departing soon. And so he's talking with them. Could, could you imagine what that conversation should have, could have been like and what it would have been like? I mean, how thrilled, how excited Moses and Elijah would have been. Dude, you're the one that I wrote about when I wrote the law. And Elijah's going, man, when, when I prophesied, you're the fulfillment of that prophecy. I can't wait. This is going to be so exciting. All of heaven is just going to burst open. And Peter, James, and John are in this, the corner going, what's, what, what's happening here? You know, they're wiping the sleep out of their eyes because they've been sleeping there. Like, they're trying to take all of this in. Look at, and, and, and so what happens here? All of this is taking place, and, and, and so there's a solution that's going to be made by Peter. In, in the presence of the supremacy of Jesus, and, and, and we have the countenance, we have this closing, we have the companions, Peter doesn't know what to say, so he says something anyway. Look, look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Amen, right? Like, we would say that. It is good, it is awesome that we get to be here with a prophet and with the guy that wrote the law. Like, yeah. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The phrase that is good, man, that, this is the bomb. Don't. Don't say that when you're on an airplane, okay? That's bad. This is really cool. This, I don't know, what, what's the hip word the kids are saying now to be awesome? Justin, what do you all say? You don't know? All right, I didn't think you would. It slaps? 
it's, it slaps. What? You can't just pull a word out of the air. It slaps. It slaps. Okay, I have no clue what y'all are talking about now. What? I, me either. I don't know what he's talking about, Ed. Um, <laughs> okay, I don't know. Okay, so that's what they would say, man. This slaps. I, oh, okay, all right, whatever. But that's rad, man. Um, so, yeah, yeah, wow. Woo, showing my age. This is really cool, dude. You know, hang 10. Um, I'm not from California. So, verse 6. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Verse 6. I told you it wasn't going to go quick. It gives us some insight into Peter. Verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love Peter. Man, I have so much in common with Peter. There's so many times that I have no clue what to say, so I say it anyways. And that's exactly, he was scared to death. Now, I don't know about you, when some people are frightened and scared, they just, like, they shriek without saying where they, you know, like nothing comes out, and other people just talk like crazy. That's what Peter did here. They were, they were terrified of the brilliance and the majesty and the power of who they saw in Jesus. And now Moses and Elijah are there in front of them, and they were terrified. Someone has said that there are people who have, uh, have to say something and people that, just have, uh, that, that don't know what to say at all. Peter was talkative in his terror, which is how some of us respond as well. But then we have number four, and we see the supremacy of Jesus coming through. While we don't know for sure why Peter said what he did, we know from verse 7 that God the Father wanted to impress upon the disciples the supremacy of his Son. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, probably interrupting Peter from what he was saying. You know, God's like, oh, enough, Peter, just stop. I love this. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Sometimes God just shuts us down. We're talking and talking and talking and talking, and he just, he just stops us. He just shuts us down. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to slow down and truly see who he is. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, makes it so clear to us. Be still and know that I am God. We get so excited, we get so ramped up, we get so terrified that, that we just start running around. And God just says, stop. Just stop. Just sit there. Stay awake. But just sit there. Just lie there. Just listen to me. Allow me, allow my word to speak into you. That's all that God is asking sometimes of us just to shh, be still and know that I am God. One commentator writes, Peter did not realize that the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's presence, was already living in a tent on earth in the body of Christ. Again, we want to we bash Peter for what he was saying, but there was part of it that I believe Peter did understand 
that the glory of God could only be in a tent because they had the tent of meeting, they had the temple. And, and so basically, Peter was saying, hey, let's just put up some tents and that's where your glory will stay. But Peter was putting Jesus, Elijah, and Moses on the same playing field. We can't do that. There, there, there are different religions out there. Islam is one that wants to put Jesus on the same level as the rest of the prophets. It's not the case. I, in, in the email that I put out this last week, helping to prepare you for the message, another thing that people do is they try to take Jesus and put him on the same level and playing field as, as Satan, the devil, Lucifer. No. Lucifer, the devil, Satan, pff, way down here. He is a created being. Jesus is supreme in his power. He is supreme to Elijah and the prophets. He's supreme to Moses and the law. He is supreme, and we can never, ever forget that. And again, I just, I love it. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It hearkens us back to Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. A short time later, shortly before his death, Jesus looked up to heaven and says this in John chapter 12, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father is affirming Jesus as the unique son of God that he will suffer he will die and that he will rise again and we need to remember that the word beloved can be translated most dear and worthy instead of being in awe of Elijah's moved by Moses the disciples are to listen to the father's beloved son note that the emphasis is on listening hearkening obeying Listen to my son and obey him. And this was a constant. The, the, the words that are used here, it's, a, it's the present tense imperative, meaning that it's an ongoing obedience. We don't just obey Jesus once and then we don't have to do it anymore. We are to obey him constantly for all of our lives. You see, Jesus is in another category all of his own. And let me remind you that as cool as this encounter was, what's more important is listening to the voice of the Son. That's what we have to remember. We don't have to go looking for visions or experiences. We don't have to go looking for some worship experience that is going to make us feel all tingly and fuzzy and warm inside. We're called to listen to the Father. Read his scripture. Listen to the Son. That's the whole reason that we're going through the Gospel of Mark. That we will see the true power and majesty of the Son. That he is constantly moving forward. That he has a purpose and a vision from the very beginning. And that purpose and vision is to go to the cross so that we can have our sins forgiven. And that's what we have to hold on to. That's what we have to remember. Now listen. It is okay to get emotional. It is okay to have that spiritual high. But don't just keep longing for it that, oh, I have to find spiritual high after spiritual high after spiritual high. And I just have to 
find my way up the mountain every time. Here's the thing. If you just lived on the mountain time, a mountaintop constantly all the time, you're going to get exhausted. I, I don't know about you, but here's the thing. We're sending our youth to CIY. I've been to CIY as a student and then also as a leader. And let me tell you that after a week long, spiritual high, having a fire hydrant just opened up into my mouth instead of just a little drinking fountain, I'm exhausted. We, we, went, to, we went on a mission trip. And the whole time that I was there, man, it was awesome. Anytime I go on a mission trip, anytime I go anywhere, it's, it, it's just awesome. But when I come back, like I'm in the valley for uh, like a couple of days, okay? But immediately I don't have to go looking for that next spiritual high. Too many people, that's what they want. But what we need to do is hold on to the voice of Jesus constantly. Open your Bible constantly. Read it. And when you do, it will speak to you. It will affect your heart. It will infiltrate your mind and your brain. And it will get into your soul. And that's what you hold on to. Again, it, it is okay to be emotional. But don't just live for it. It's more important to be obedient. That's the important part. So as the disciples process the splendor and the the supremacy of Jesus and try to comprehend the, the glory cloud and the presence of Moses and Elijah, all of a sudden, they're left alone. Look, look at verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. But Jesus only. Allow those words just to sink in. He is the bridge between the testaments. He is the one that fills in the gap. He is the one that is the bridge between a holy God and a sinful people. That's us. Only Jesus and Jesus alone can grant forgiveness and eternal life. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, it says this. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let that sink in. There is no other name. Here's a statement we've quoted before, and I want to repeat it to you again. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When faced with the splendor of Jesus, Peter tries to come up with some man-made solution. When the disciples encounter the supremacy of Jesus, we see that they struggled in their response in, in all of this. And that brings us to our final point. And that's the, the struggle of the disciples. It had to... This... <laughs> This experience that they had to have gone through. If I would have had this experience, because of who I am, and I'm sure it was hard for Peter too, like I couldn't have kept my mouth shut. Man, I'd have, we, we sing it every year at Christmas, right? Go tell it on a mountain, right? Man, I'd have been shouting from the rooftops and the mountain and everyone else. I'd have been saying, hey, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. 
This is amazing. The power of Jesus, it just shone through him. And his clothes, they turned white. And his face, it was glowing. Like, it was amazing. And then Elijah showed up and, 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 and Moses was there. And you, you had to have been there. Look at verse 9. Jesus tells them to be quiet. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And sometimes the Bible tells us to do things that we go, you sure? Like, Jesus, don't you want people to know who you are? Jesus, don't you want everyone to know the power that is inside of you that you're, that you're holding on to? Here's the thing. This is the final command to his disciples for them to keep quiet. After this, they're going to be able to go and tell it everywhere. And, and, and it had a time limit. In a very short while, Jesus is going to go to the cross. And the moment that he rises from the grave, those disciples are to shout it from every rooftop that they can tell everyone after the resurrection of who Jesus is. And it, after the resurrection, it's all going to make sense. But Peter, James, and John, they didn't understand at that moment. I'm sure they didn't. And they had to have had all kinds of questions, right? Look, look at verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves. They kept quiet. I think it burned a hole through the side of Peter's mouth because he wanted to share it with everybody. But they kept quiet, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They put it all inside. They keep it all in. But listen, it's okay to have questions. So many times we're told, oh, um, you're sinning if you question God, if you question the scriptures, if you question anything. They questioned it. They didn't understand it. Jesus has been living with them. Jesus has been telling them all along. He's already told them that he's going to have to die. He's already once told them that, that he's going to go to the cross, that he's heading to Jerusalem for a reason. He's told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're trying to stop me. But he knows he has to go to the cross. But in all of that, they questioned. It's okay to question. As long, listen, as long as you're seeking out the answers. Question away. As long as you're seeking for those answers. You don't have to have, let, newsflash, you don't have to have everything figured out in order to know who he is as your savior. You just have to trust him. And in trusting him, he will help you to see so much more. We're not going to have everything revealed. The moment that you give your life over to him and you repent and you ask for forgiveness and you go into the water and you're saved, all of a sudden you don't come out of the water and your eyes are opened and you get a glimpse of everything. It doesn't work that way, okay? I wish it did, but it doesn't. And we're still going to quit. Your pastor questions. I question. I read scripture and I go, Hmm. I, I read through Genesis and I try to put together a timeline and I, I read through certain things and I, I study the Nephilim and, and, and I study Revelation and I'm like, huh, what do I really believe about that? Jesus, are you, is this really going to happen this way? 
it's okay to question as long as you're seeking the truth and the answers. I want to ponder one last quote for us. It comes from A.W. Tozer. He said, as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. The moment that you put Jesus where he belongs in your life, everything else comes into focus. Please never forget that. As we prepare for communion, as we prepare to, if there's a decision that you need to make, if you, if you need prayer in your life, if you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior, if you're ready to place your membership here at Stafford County Christian Church, if you have if anything that you need, we're going to continue worshiping. And I want you to know that, that you, can, you can meet me in the back, the elders will be in the back with me, and, and we'll, we'll talk with you, we'll pray with you, we'll help however we possibly can. As you prepare to take communion, you remember what Jesus did on the cross. We have stations in the back and on the sides. and I encourage you to go ahead and you can get those as you work your way back. I have one last scripture I want to share with you. Paul says this to young Timothy. He looks at Timothy. He's a mentor to Timothy. And this is what he says to Timothy. And he could be saying it to us here today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who lives, who, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is blessed and only sovereign to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal domain amen Fight the good fight. Never give up. There are times that we have felt like giving up. This past year has been hard on so many of us in so many different ways. So many people have chose to walk away from the faith. They've chose to give up on their Lord. I'm thankful that you are here, that you are worshiping with us in person, that you're watching online, that you will find a way to continue to get involved, that you will be a part of our vision and our mission to give, to share the gospel in, in Stafford County and all around. So as we close, fight the good fight you have a decision to make I pray that you make it here this morning let's pray Almighty Father I thank you that we can come and worship you here today Father I, I thank you for allowing us to get a glimpse of your glory I, I thank you that you have allowed us to worship you in, in such a way 
And Father, as we prepare to take communion, that we remember the sacrifice that your son made for us. And Father, as we look forward to the day that we get to be with you in that unapproachable light, Lord, I can't wait. But I don't want to go alone. I want to see as many people go to heaven as possibly imaginable. But Father, that means that we take your word and we share it with those that are around us. Father, allow us to remember that just outside of these doors, that is our mission field, and that as we continue to worship here this morning, that, that we will really just contemplate what that means to be children of God. We pray this in your son's most holy and precious name. Amen.